Oh, good morning, church. Oh, it's uh, good to be here. Um, today's, uh, as Justin said, today's a bit of a unique day in the life of our church. Today we um, are celebrating six years as a local church gathering, uh, gathering on Sunday here at Minor Elementary School. We started off as a parish of the district church six years ago, and then two years ago we installed elders, uh, which is a mark of church growth and maturity for us. We became an independent church. It's now Christ City Church. So if you're newer to Christ City, uh, or if this is your first time, welcome. You've, you've joined us on really a, a special day of celebration and reflection, and, and immediately following the service, as was mentioned earlier, we're going to share a meal together, ice cream, cake. Uh, we'll celebrate all that God has done in our midst uh, over these many years, and we'll pray that God will continue uh, to hold us, to move among us, and to work through us, to use us, to love us, and to woo us in ever-increasing measure into His kingdom. So I'm really glad that, that you're here today. Do you ever have those, do you ever have those days, um, or just maybe not days, but those moments where you, you, just, you just kind of marvel? You, um, you just have to kind of, kind of step back for a minute and, and look at some occurrence or some accomplishment that, that went a certain way, and, and you're, just, you're just sort of awed by it. You ever, you ever have that? Um, just before the end of the school year this past uh, couple months ago, my daughter was in her first spelling bee. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I'm actually a stickler uh, for the spelling bee. I've required all of my children, regardless of spelling acumen, to enter the spelling bee. And, and I'm going to let you in on a secret about this. Don't tell my kids, but one of the reasons that I put my kids in the spelling bee is because I want them to grow up to be well-adjusted adults that aren't devastated by failure. Um, so I do, I have two goals for the spelling bee. One is to learn how to spell some words, and the other is I want you to know how to deal with failure. Because the odds are, as brilliant as my kids are, the odds are they're not going to win the spelling bee. Now, some of you, you know, like I sort of see you look at me like you just send your kids out there like lambs to the slaughter. I'm like, yes, that's right. That's exactly what I'm doing. I, I, I want them uh, to, to do that because hear me out. I feel like if my kids can navigate sort of the training wheels of failure, otherwise known as the fourth grade spelling bee, then they're going to be better equipped to handle future failures like terrible job searches or, you know, unrequited love or things that don't go their way or a miserable season of cheering on some dog sports team that they have. And so in order to prepare them for that, spelling bee. That's why I send them out there. However, this past year, something really unexpected happens on the way to the post spelling bee consolation ice cream with dad. Because when they look, I got to go take them. Let's get some ice cream. It's okay. It doesn't matter. You didn't know how to spell that word that we covered for six weeks leading up to the spelling bee. Pressure hits. I get it. It's okay. Here's a massive amount. Here's a the biggest ice cream banana split you could possibly shove into your face as a way to say good job. So on, on our way to that event, uh, my daughter got second place out of 43 children. And yeah, hey, how about that? That was great. <laughs> and I'll say, by the way, the final word she got was like the hardest ninth grade spelling bee word you could imagine. The kid that won got like, like he got like ball. I mean, we're not bitter about it, but we, but we circled the date for next year's Spelling Bee, and that kid's days as the Spelling Bee champion are numbered, man. We're, we're gunning for him. Having said all that, when it was over, Lisa and I were just sitting there. We're just like, like shaking our heads like, oh, my word. This is amazing. 
And we're just and we're like just grinning. We're smiling. We didn't have. We're just looking at each other like I don't, I don't know. I don't know how did this how did this happen? Like, and we're just we're just amazed and we're proud and we're marveling at what happened. We're watching Annalise's classmates kind of circle around her in celebration and like cheer her on and look at her medal as they put it around her neck and and we're just awed. We're amazed and we didn't. We, there wasn't any words for us to say. I have a sense that. That today, as we celebrate six years, that our Heavenly Father is looking at us and He's just grinning. He's just pleased. He's just delighted over us. and Over us individually, for sure, but over us collectively as a church. And He's just saying, well done. Well done, daughters, sons. He's just delighting. He's just amazing over us. I know that you've had those moments, too, when you just step back and look at some occurrence or some accomplishment and you're just a bit awed by it and you don't have words, really. You're just mostly silent. Or you make some inarticulate noise, like you grunt or like, mm, mm. You just exhale. And, and, and in your soul, there's something that stirs, like with the psalmist that says, my soul rejoices in the Lord and delights in His salvation. My whole being will exclaim, who is like you, Lord? And I think that that's how the Lord feels about us, even in this moment. And saying, happy birthday, Christ City Church. The Lord has been faithful to us. What, what started as a small group just blocks away on Bay Street across from the Stadium Armory Metro has blossomed into a church with nearly a dozen small groups that meet from Hyattsville to Northern Virginia with a bulk of them peppered throughout Northeast and Southeast D.C. All outposts of good news and good works in Jesus' name. What began as a small gathering on Sunday evenings has bloomed into regular services on Sunday mornings in a growing church with tremendous favor in the community. And so today, a day that's marked out to celebrate the anniversary of the church, it's right for us to celebrate and to ask, how did we get here? And then where do we go from here? And I don't, I'm going to answer this in a really insufficient way, but to say in approaching these questions, I've been reflecting on other churches in Scripture. One in particular, the church in Ephesus over the past couple of weeks, because I think that that church's story can be an encouragement and a challenge and a caution to us. As we look back at six years and then as we look ahead at another 160 of the Lord Terry's, in Ephesus' story, we can see how we got to where we are and what happened and how that can inform our story and our celebration. Just a bit of background before we jump in. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he served in Ephesus for three years during his missionary journeys throughout Asia and the Middle East. He preached in synagogues and other venues uh, throughout Ephesus. And when he preached, folks came to faith in Christ. And there were those that began to follow Jesus and those that began to be discipled in the ways of Jesus. And then uh, in Acts 19, that's recording some of Paul's movements around Ephesus, it would say this in verse uh, 10. says that Paul preached so thoroughly throughout the area for two years that all the residents of Asia, that's a lot of people, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Because of uh, Paul's influence and the influence of the early Christian church within Ephesus, there was, uh, there was economic impact on the city. So much so that those that made their money out of crafting idols to the God of Artemis, they began to lose money. They began to see their, their economic well-being decline because people said, we don't worship that God anymore. We, we, we worship Jesus. And an entire city broke out in riot and ran Paul out of the city. And that's how Acts 19 closes. 
with Paul and his partner Gaius on the run. We pick up in chapter 20 and we're able to gain Paul's perspective on how he ministered in Ephesus during this time. In Acts 20, verse 1, it would say this, When the uproar, the the economic riot that took place, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye, and he set out for Macedonia. He traveled throughout that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months, because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, and he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derb, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus. Somebody loud, I messed that up, didn't I? I hear you. That's okay. There's grace here. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later we joined the others in Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Paul leaves, he leaves Ephesus following the riot, and he travels to different regions. But a few things to notice um, about this. First, I want us to notice who's with him. Because Paul rarely traveled alone. Paul, uh, uh, he didn't minister alone, he didn't disciple alone, and neither should we. When he does travel alone, he's always writing longingly for companionship. Jesus uh, sends out the disciples in pairs, and so too does Paul travel this way. Because rarely is a mission and uh, the work of God engaged in a solo endeavor. Most, of, most often the New Testament evidences the mission is done in community. In, in verses 4 through 6, we see Paul's partners in ministry. There was Sopater. Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, and so on and so forth, that we see that these are the different ones that traveled with Paul, that ministered with Paul, that discipled along with Paul. Luke gives the names, but he also gives where they are from. Because Paul, he's not, he's not a lone ranger. We also see this in his letters. In all of the letters that Paul writes, he's highlighting others that he either wants to come with him or that are with him there. In the book of Romans, we see that Sopater is with him. So is Timothy and Gaius are with them. Those that were likewise with him in Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians, we see that Stephanus, Fortunaeus, Achaeus, that they're with him. In Ephesians, Tychicus is also there. In Philippians, Timothy and Epaphras are with Paul. I could go on, there's others, but the point is that Paul never traveled alone. He didn't plant churches by himself. He always did it in community. When Christ City was born, it was born out of a group of folks that were living in close close proximity to each other, that were being discipled, and that were discipling others, and that had an ache for this neighborhood, that had a desire to see a new work, a new movement of God happen. It wasn't the work of one individual, but it was a work of community. Look, I've I've drunk the Kool-Aid on living in community. Christian life isn't uh, to be lived in disconnected isolation, but in community, and neither is the Christian mission intended to be done in isolation, but in community. I shared a few weeks ago about a friend of mine, Daniel Clark. Um, Daniel is planting a new church in Glover Park later this year, and he's a personal trainer, and he's been working with me and training with me. I know some of you are looking at me right now like, man, Watson is swole. (laughs) I know. 
Anyway, Daniel and I were uh, we were talking about different fitness apps, and you know, like should I get a Fitbit? Like, what what should I do? Should I go on those things? And you know, we were kind of talking about it, and he's kind of walking me through it. And then he shared with me an article that stated uh, there was a new study out um, of the University of Notre Dame that identified uh, one of the things that you can do to achieve physical fitness, and the best thing that you can do it isn't actually a device, but it's community. Uh, the, the, uh, the research would say that having a social network of friends and family who are active, have similar fitness goals, and educated about diet and exercise, it can have a massive impact on your health. When researchers used both social network structures and Fitbit data, they found that they were able to achieve 65% uh, improvement in predicting happiness, 55% improvement in predicting positive attitudes, and a 38% improvement in predicting success. However, when using fitness trackers without positive social networks, there was tremendous downsides. They noticed that there was technology addiction, an increase in eating disorders, and an increase in uh, feelings of guilt. They haven't made an app or a device that is better than community. Paul traveled in and ministered in and lived in community. And our way forward will also be rooted in a Jesus-centered community with each other. Paul's community was also a multi-ethnic and a multi-regioned tribe. They weren't a homogenous group. They weren't all the same. We could look again at the list of who's with him. They were from Berea, from Thessalonica, from Derb, from Ephesus, from Asia, from Syria. They're from different parts of the Middle East, from Asia, and from Europe. They were... Um, from different places, from different cultural backgrounds, from different stages of life. At Christ City, our staff and elders are men and women from different areas of the country, different races and ethnic backgrounds of origin and life stage and education and economic diversity. And that's not because we just want to be diverse, but because it echoes the kingdom of God. Which is still a growing edge for us, and our church doesn't yet fully reflect the full racial and economic diversity of our neighborhood and of the surrounding community. And yet, even still, pastors and elders are committed to seeing Christ City Church be a church that reflects this multiracial, diverse, and welcoming reality that is the kingdom of God. Paul's community was also the fruit of his mission, which is important for us to note. Those who, those who traveled with Paul and who helped Paul establish churches and ministry outposts, they were actually the fruits of his mission. And yet now they were the agents of the mission. These, these were men that Paul had led to Christ or that had sat under Paul's teaching but were now part of the movement. They weren't content to simply be sort of passive in the mission of God. They were now on the front lines. Those that were once the fruit of the mission are now the agents of the movement, as Pastor Will Willeman would say, that this gives evidence of the movement-mindedness of the young Christian communities, which were already giving up some of their best local leadership in order to see the wider work and witness of Christ's church move forward. We'll continue on in Acts 20, verse 17. For Miltus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church elders of the church of Ephesus, and when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day till I came to the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, and you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 18, he says, You know how I lived among you, serving with humility and tears. Paul lived among them. He, he lived with them for three years. And now listen, living among a people is more than just simply sharing a street or a zip code or a cubicle or a classroom. It requires an intertwining of one's life with the lives of those that are around you. It requires intention. But Paul didn't just, he just say, I, I lived among you, but he describes how he lived among them. He said, through serving and through humility and tears and trials. Paul put the Ephesians first. And, and why did he put them first? For two chief reasons. Because Christ modeled service. Because that's what Christ did. The towel and the basin washing the disciples' feet. And the other is because of the cross. Because the ultimate service has been rendered to us. We are now freed to serve others. And this is central. We, we don't serve to earn any sort of favor or salvation or because it's just simply the right thing to do. Service is a response to a God who has so lavishly served us. Paul lived out his faith in front of the Ephesians, and he didn't simply just tell them how to live. He showed them he was an example. He doesn't just say, I serve the Lord. He says, I did it with humility and with tears and with trials. With, with tears, there's a, there's a humility, there's a vulnerability that comes with tears. Some of you have heard me say, I, I, I'm, I'm a crier. I cry at commercials. I own it. I cry when I preach. I, I don't trust a man doesn't cry in public. So I think there's a vulnerability that's displayed there. and that What Paul's trying to lift up, and he said, I, I served you with humility. I served you with tears. He doesn't live with a veneer of togetherness or perfection or a sense of strength, but he puts his vulnerabilities on display in the midst of community and says, I lived with you. Verse 20 and 21, he says, I, I, and I taught, I taught uh, publicly and privately and house to house. Paul explained the, the, the good news of Jesus to people. He lived out his faith with works and then with words. He gave an explanation for the curious manner in which he lived. And he said, I, I, look, I held nothing back. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, anything that was going to be helpful and healthy and push you towards conformity into the image of Jesus. I didn't withhold any of that. I shared hard words with deep love. He said, I laid it all out there. I told the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and the implications that that had on his own life. And he taught publicly and privately publicly in synagogues and in meeting houses and in venues like this one, and privately in homes. It sounds like small groups to me. Monday nights over the grill with friends or Thursday mornings over coffee that Paul's teaching wasn't just once a week or one day a week, but it was every day. In the everyday living, it was in different places. It was at 601 15th Street Northeast, and it was in whatever your address is. It was in homes, and it was on the basketball court or on the jogging trail or wherever it is you find yourself that Paul said that's that those are the spots where I preached In verse 21 it says I, I testified to both Jews and Greeks he didn't just preach to one kind of folk or one kind of people or just folks that were like him or that liked him he reached out to those that were also distinctly different than he was he crossed every real boundary of class and culture and race and religion and politics and privilege. And he did it for the sake of the kingdom of God. So just in summary, when, when, when Paul is outlining the beginnings of the church in Ephesus and what radiated out from that place, 
the origins of the church, the church planting effort that took place in this early Grecian city, he says that what happened was a multi-ethnic, diverse, Christ-centered group of believers who were held together in tight community that practiced the teachings of Jesus, that displayed the love of God to everyone around, and in their midst displayed what it could look like when the rule and reign of Christ was on display in each life and every sphere of life. Wherever we go from here, Christ City, I hope that it contains some great measure of a faithful pursuit of that. Of a multi-ethnic, diverse, Christ-centered group of believers held together in tight community that practice the teachings of Jesus, that display the love of God to everybody around and in their midst display what it can look like when the rule and reign of Christ is on display everywhere we can look and can imagine. I think that as we look back over our time as a church, thanks be to God, we can see similar evidences. Not perfect by any stretch, but something to celebrate nonetheless. Over the past six years, we've, we've seen people come to faith in dramatic ways. We've seen people baptize, some of you, in celebration. We've seen marriages restored and healed in this place. We've witnessed those that were sick be miraculously healed. We've, we've cast out demons and witnessed people experience freedom in Christ. We've seen families that have been experiencing homelessness find permanent housing. We've seen the power of God in our midst. We've caught a glimpse of God's kingdom coming here. In the Ephesians church story, in some ways, it, it mirrors our, our own up to this point, and, and that's encouraging and humbling, but it's also not all of the Ephesian church's story. Following Acts 20, Paul would, he would then he would speak to the elders of the Ephesian church, and then he would travel to Jerusalem, and then eventually on to Rome, where he'd be arrested and eventually martyred for the faith. While imprisoned, Paul would actually write letters, write a letter back to the church in Ephesus. And when he would write back, he would remind them of many of the things that he impressed upon him during his three years living with them. And in Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, what we refer to as the book of Ephesians, Paul would remind them of the Father heart of God. He would remind them of their adoption into the family of God. He would remind them that they are chosen and that they are redeemed and that they are beloved. He'd remind them that God has lavished riches and grace upon them. He would remind them of their inheritance because of Christ. He'd remind them that, they, uh, that, that, they, that their lives and that their futures are sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit. He'd Write them to remind them that Christ has torn down the strife and barriers that exist between people of different ethnicities and cultures and classes. He would remind them that, that in Christ there's a new humanity. He would write to them in his letter about the spirit-filled life, about how to care for husbands and wives and children and neighbors. And then at the end of it, he'd say hello to some of his buddies. That's a good letter. Tradition tells us that after Paul left Ephesus that he then would install another pastor. Timothy became the pastor. And then after Timothy, tradition holds that John, the apostle, became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. That's a great sort of lineage of pastors there. And yet 40 years later, Jesus writes this letter back to the church. The angel 
of the church in Ephesus writes, these are the one, these are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Imagery for the church, the one that holds the church and that moves among the church. Jesus says this, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. And I know your perseverance, church. And I know that you can't tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name. And you haven't grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus is writing to this beloved church, and he says, look, I see that all that you've done over the years, I've seen your fidelity to the message and the movement of Jesus. I see the work that you've done to persevere in the midst of hardships and trial. I see the discipling work, the healing work, the liberating work, the justice-seeking work that you've done. I see the, uh, the ways that you've displayed the beauty and grandeur of God in your midst. I see it all, but I've got this thing against you. You've forsaken the thing that you've lost your first love. The church had begun to neglect the thing that mattered most. Their love for God and God's love for them. And this is our encouragement, Christ City, on our sixth anniversary. And this is our caution. Let us not be a people that forsake our first love. May we not get so wrapped up in the stuff of church and the work of the kingdom, either the Lord's kingdom or our own even, that we neglect the love that we had at first, that first birthed us. With whatever we do for Christ and his kingdom, let us do it as a people who are continually swept up in the passion and love of Jesus. Let our pursuits of justice and righteousness resound from a place of love for Christ and his kingdom. Let our work of discipleship and compassion be rooted in our own marinating in the beauty of Jesus and our love of him as we gaze upon him continually. But we can forget what it's like to be passionate for Christ. John Tyson, a pastor up in New York City, he writes this, that when a relationship begins to die, the things that the relationship produces take the place of why the relationship was founded. Lisa and I, we, we married 18 years ago, and when we first met, we were, we were drunk with love, still are. We loved each other, uh, and we, we didn't have anything. <laughs> first apartment, we didn't have, we had a desk. That was our only piece of furniture. Oh, and somebody gave us a stand and a TV, and that was it. We just made pallets on the ground until my boss at the time found out I didn't have any furniture, and then she donated me some. We didn't have anything at the time. But now, 18 years later, like our life is filled with the stuff that love produces. We've got kids and houses and memories and cars and money and church. And, and if we're not f careful, what can die and wither is the very reason that the relationship started in the first place. Because the thing that the relationship produced can take the place of why the relationship was founded. And the temptation for us, Christ City Church, is that we substitute our initial love for Jesus for the things that our love for Jesus has produced. Our shared love for Christ has produced rich community, 
It's produced a, a passion for God's word and a passion and an ache for God's justice. It's produced favor and impact in our city, all of which are good and beautiful and God-honoring. And at the same time, it can cause our gaze to drift away from the love of Christ. And this was the church in Ephesus situation. They had forgotten their first love. And what Jesus, but what Jesus doesn't tell us though in this spot is for us to work harder. He doesn't say you've lost your first love. Now, now if you'll just work really hard to recapture it or rekindle it, that's really what I want. He, he doesn't say that. He actually says work less. He calls his church and his people to remember him, to remember his work on our behalf. He calls us to return to him and to love him the great Christian task isn't us working hard to muster up love, but to remember that God holds us. That he's the one who holds the stars and moves among the lampstands of our lives. We're in his grip because of his love for us. And as we move into the years ahead, church, God will continue to do, by his grace, amazing things in our midst in us and through us, for his glory and for our good. And as the story of Christ unfolds, let the plot line be that we are a people that never forget our first love, that of Jesus. Uh, it was seven years ago, I'll just close with this, uh, that I was sitting at my, um, at my kitchen table in Memphis, Tennessee. I was having one of the hardest conversations I've ever had to have. I was telling Nathan, who was six at the time, that we're going to leave Memphis and we're going to move to D.C. He was not happy. He was six years old. He was not happy. And I'm telling him, I'm like, well, we're going to go there. We're going to join with this, uh, with this community of folks that are really wanting to uh, tell people about the love of Jesus and display that love uh, to those that are around him. And he's like, well, Dad, we love Jesus. Why don't they just move here? <laughs> it's a great word. Great question. Theological, missiological implications. I can't go into it with you now at six years old, but that's a great question. I remember saying to me at one point, he, uh, he said several things. One of the things was he told me that I was ruining his life, which is a funny thing to hear from when you're six years old. You're ruining my life, Dad. And I'll never forget him saying to me, can't you just for once listen to your son and not listen to God? But even in that moment, I knew what my son needs most is for me to display God's love and to remind him of God's love. And that meant that we were going to follow God wherever he took us. And he's rooted us deeply in D.C. Church, that same love, that same passion that all of us have had early on in our lives and early on in the life of our church, let us never lose that. As God continues to to grow us and to deepen us, to expand the work of Christ City in this place. Thanks be to God for it. But let us not be a church that loses our first love. And let us say at our seventh and our eighth and our 80th anniversary that we are a people that passionately love Jesus. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, you are the one that holds the stars, that walks among the lampstands. You're the one that holds us and that moves among us as your children. You are the one that loved us first. You loved us first at the beginning of time. You loved us first at the beginning of this day and at the beginning of this moment. You have ever and always been the one that loves us first. And a right response to that is to, is to gaze upon you, Jesus, and to say we love you too. And to display that love not just to you but to each other. Spirit, I pray that you would hold us fast and that we would hold fastly to you. Not in, not in fear or an obligation or in duty, but in awe and marvel and astonishment at your great love towards us. It's a right response. And the way that an ovation is a right response to a master musician. Let our right response be one of love towards you and to those around us. Each day and every day for all of our days. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.